Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at dtcpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free no-obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. This episode of DTC Pod is also brought to you by Peel Insights, the e-commerce analytics platform that supercharges all of your retention efforts every day and with every customer. Go to peelinsights.com slash dtcpod to learn how hundreds of e-commerce brands use Peel to reveal purposeful insights like LTV, AOV, repurchase rate, churn, and hundreds of metrics more. See how brands are nurturing deeper customer relationships with easy-to-use retention tools that hyper-target and provide immediate growth. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTCpod. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Ben Trigo, who is the co-founder and CEO of Bainbridge. So, Ben, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Bainbridge and your background as well? Thanks, Blaine. It's awesome to be here. So uh, my co-founder and I, Austin, uh, who's my co-founder, believe that you know, connecting networks is what makes the difference in e-commerce. So there's a, um, you know, you want to connect data and you want to connect finance, you want to connect insights and knowledge, and then you want to take action. So Bainbridge is really built around doing those things. It's it's the combination of data and finance to enable CEOs and leaders of, of uh, e-com businesses to understand their priorities and take the best actions. And those actions, like, you know, today, it's around cash, you know, how do I generate it or get it? How do I maximize profitability? Um, and then, you know, how do I maximize my outcomes? How do I get the best possible outcome for all this work you know, blood, sweat, and tears that I'm putting in. Yeah. And I think one reason that we're really excited to do this episode is because like as a, as a founder, right, when you're starting your business, you have to think about capitalizing in a certain way. And then as that business grows, especially because of the heavy operational aspect of e-commerce, things start to change. Um, you're making bigger purchase orders, you're scaling up. And so the way you're running a business when you're doing, you know, 10 to $50 million in revenue annually is much different from when you're on your first purchase order and you're doing, you know, your first couple hundred thousand or first million in revenue. And then obviously it changes and changes as you continue to scale up. So I thought for this episode, what would be really fun to do is kind of do a little crash course in, in finance and like not, not too heavy or too like, uh, too boring of finance, but more just like as a founder sort of field guide in terms of what are the things that you should be thinking about when you're raising capital? What are all your channels to raise capital in? How does that affect the business? How do you think about growing? And then after that, we can maybe go into the product. So does that sound all right with you? Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. So why don't you kick us off? Why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what a found like how a founder should think about capital from the inception of their business, right? Like, so let's imagine that I want to start maybe a supplements business or an apparel business. I have I have an idea for a product. Um, you know, I have a name, I have a brand. I'm ready to spin up a website. Maybe I'm even ready to. I've been talking to a supplier and they've given me a couple quotes and I'm ready to get started with my first PO. And now I'm like, okay, this stuff is really starting to come together. I need to turn this into a company and now I need to start thinking about capitalizing it to start building it. Like, 
what are the first thoughts that kind of come into you, to your mind and what a founder should be thinking about as, as we cross that first bridge? Well, that's a great framing of this because the initial reaction of most people is like, okay, let me go out and put a pitch deck together. Let me go raise money. You know, let me go out to friends and family or maybe even, you know, some pre-seed or angel networks. But I think the very first step should be you got to think about capital as just another tool for your business. And you also have to be um, planning ahead for um, how am I going to get that capital? So initially, you got to get it somehow because, you, you know, your business isn't generating it. But you ultimately need to generate it yourself. You know, as everybody's found out, you know, it's getting harder and harder to raise money. And even the um, alternative lending is getting harder. So and your ability to raise money is also directly related to your ability to generate cash because all the investors are going to be like, eventually you need to make money and make a profit. So really wrapping your head around that initially is critical and thinking through some of those issues. And, and um, you know, the, where we start people is, is like you think of capital just as like you're going to generate it yourself or you're going to basically buy it. If you're buying it, you're selling equity or you're buying it in the form of loans where you're paying interest. And then you want to think through, you know, what, how profitable can this business be? Because that's going to directly determine my ability to generate my own cash. Then you want to start thinking through things around, um, um, you know, if I have a repeat purchase business, like a supplements business, I, you know, I, I should have good repeat business out of that. How am I going to do that? And how important is that going to be? And how am I going to drive that? And how does that, how quickly do I get paid back when I acquire those customers? And how much um, profit or you know excess cash are they generating for me? And then the last thing to think really think through is like how can I um, shorten my cash conversion cycle as much as possible? So this uh, sounds technical, but it's not really not. The cash conversion cycle is literally the you know you buy some uh, inventory, you pay you know from your suppliers, you put money out, and then there's this period of time when it comes into you, and then you sell it. And then when you sell it, that's the end of the cash conversion cycle. And oftentimes people don't think through that well enough. And the problem is, you know, you have ever increasing money going out before you, you can generate it yourself. So it sounds like, oh, sorry, go ahead, Blaine. No, I, and I think that's a, a really good point and really good framework to like think about things. And one that you just touched on, it's like, obviously here you're in the business of coming up with a product that can generate more revenue and you can sell it for more than you're making it and you can cover all your input costs and then some and that's going to make you happy your investors happy and that's ultimately what a business is about but i think um you know a couple of the inputs that you had just pointed out that people may not think so much about is a the capital what's the cost of it what are you selling to get it b like how can i use whatever i'm product i'm making how can i invest in a product that i can turn into cash generating as quick as possible and three how can I cut down that cash conversion cycle as quickly as possible? And I think, you know, just to piggyback off of an episode um, that we just did with uh, this guy, Kian Gulzari, who's an absolute beast in sourcing, right? And we were, we were talking about him. He sourced for everyone. And we're like, okay, how does it work? How long does it take? Like, how should a business think about when they're sourcing? And he's like, look, when you're sourcing products, you know, it's, you're going to have 14 days where you're getting the spec sheet. You, then you can budget another 14 until you get the sample. After that, it's going to be, you know, another 30 days before you get the production sample and you're going to have more time before they actually ship it to you. And then you're going to see it and then you're going to have to go back to them. Maybe you have to make changes and then you're like, okay, now I need you to actually send me the real production sample off the line to make sure the whole batch is good. Once we've approved that, okay, great. We can go into production now budget this many days for production. Once your goods have been produced, now you have to ship it. Right. And if you are in, if you're shipping it from Asia, it's going to take longer to get to uh, the East coast than it is the West coast. So you got a budget for that. And then now once you've got your goods, now you actually have to sell them and then you have to think about restocking. So, and all of that kind of ties into that cash conversion cycle that you were talking about. So as you think about that cash conversion cycle, what do you see from brands? How long does it take them to um, convert their their cash from um, the goods that they're buying to the goods that they're selling? What's a good, I don't know if you've seen any good benchmarks or how you would think about it um, for, across some of the brands that you've been working with. Well, the, the all-time hero of this is Amazon, right? Which was able to pull off a negative cash conversion cycle. 
And so what that means is that they were getting paid in advance of having to buy the inventory. And so when you think about Amazon, I'm old enough to kind of remember when they sold books, right? And that's all they sold. But, um, you know, that was like why they could drive the prices down so low. Because they, in effect, they had this cash flywheel and they didn't have to worry about it. How, you know, how did they how did they do that? Like how how did they get to a negative cash conversion cycle? Uh, well, I mean, you know, they, I don't know the exact answer, but I'm guessing that they probably took advantage of the fact that like the internet, like you know, everybody was used to selling to bookstores and sort of these you know credit terms, right? Like, well, I, you know, so they just took probably took advantage of that, you know, and said, well, I'm selling it today, and then I'll go out and buy it from you tomorrow. <laughs> Gotcha. Gotcha. In between, I have plenty of time to get it and ship it or whatever. So, uh, um, getting to negative would be incredible. It would it would almost guarantee success in your business. You'd have to really screw it up. Getting as close to zero is fantastic. And to answer your question about benchmarks, but highly dependent on your supply chain, if it's China and what type of product it is, and all sorts of things. And if you're buying finished goods or manufacturing yourself. But um, a, a pretty lousy cash conversion cycle would be, you know, up in like 270 days and closing in on a year. Um, a really, you know, hey, you've got this thing pretty nailed is, is getting down below 90 days and 60 and, you know, if you can turn that quickly. The, a way to think about cash conversion cycle, um, sometimes it's helpful for people is if you think about like compounding interest. So if I loan you money, you know, Blaine, and I asked for it back in a year, I, I've done, you know, one turn of that money. But if I loan, if I can loan you money and you have to pay me back tomorrow, I can do 365 turns of that money so I can grow up that much faster. And that's how you should be thinking about your cash as a founder, as you invest in inventory. How fast can I turn this? Because the faster I can turn it, the more I can make each spin through the flywheel the more I'll have uh, naturally over time, the less I'll have to go out and raise. So if you're interested in dilution, which you should be, if you're listening to this podcast, you should be thinking those issues through. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great way to, to think about it in terms of almost just like interest, right? The more times that it can compound, the better it's going to be. And the slower your cash conversion cycle is, the less amount of times you're going to be able to make it through that cash conversion cycle, which just slows the growth. Whereas if you can really shorten it, all of a sudden things start to, like everyone knows, compound interest becomes exponential over time. In the beginning, it's slow, but the more and more times you go through that exponential equation, it starts to look pretty good over time. So I think that's a really good analogy um, for that. And before we get too far into like the nuts and bolts and the finances of these business um Let's just take a step back and go into just general financing. I know we had talked about, um, you know, that there's a couple different options, maybe things like you could, people could bootstrap, people could, you know, turn to friends and family, people could think about VCs, people could think about crowdfunding. Um, so as a, as a founder who's like getting into the space, how do you think about some of these different options? What are some of the pros and cons of each? And, um, and yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on, on raising that first initial capital to get that flywheel going? Well, it Friends and family is great for because they're your friends and family, right? So they're often buying into you, you know, um, your vision. They're not going to hold you to the, a standard of a VC, typically. Um, crowdfunding, I think, is also really interesting because it uh, oftentimes doesn't translate into equity. And it gives you some really good uh, signal on the viability of your, you know, product. What does the market think of it? So I think those are two awesome areas. Um, I'd be super careful about running up my credit cards um, and taking on a lot of personal debt. You know, that stuff can, uh, just like the compounding, in I mean, there's compounding interest, right? And it really stings when it's like 18, 20% um, and you're, you know, taking out a second mortgage or something like that, <laughs> even before you get going. So that I would try to avoid at all costs. I think that the, the um, the other thing that people uh, will often do is they run out to like institutional investors really quickly. I think you can waste an enormous amount of time doing that before you have the, the key proof points um, that, that they're going to want to see. 
And then the last point I would make about um, a lot of the pitches that you see very early stage are very are really focused on the product. It's beautiful. You know, here's how we're going to do it: the sourcing, the market. But they haven't really laid out the these concepts of like, here's how we're going to make money, and we're we're not going to endlessly be coming back to you or other people for more. So giving a little bit of extra thought there. Um, so the I think friends and family. Sorry to cut you off. Friends and family crowdfunding would be my top choices. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing, especially like every business is a little bit different. So even like VC, I know that there are definitely VC funds that focus on this sort of thing, but you also have to understand that the returns that a VC is looking for um, when you're raising are really outsized. So for you to do that, you have to be going after a really big market. And then it really, obviously it's about building a good product, but you need to be able to build from nothing operations that can really, really, really scale because every whether you're going into retail, into Amazon, into your own channels, et cetera, you're going to have to build this omni-channel sort of machine that's going to be everywhere if you really hope to um, be a big win for the VCs because they need outsized returns for for your pro- project to win. So I think um, you know what's what's appealing potentially about even bootstrap projects or um you know when you can get early friends and family backing is the fact that you can really take your time in testing your product and growing it at like a natural rate that your product sort of needs as opposed to um being just all in or nothing now that doesn't mean that once you've proven out initial product market fit and you're ready to scale maybe there is a great vc partner that it makes sense to layer in some some capital on top of the growth that you're already seeing or maybe for for the right founders it makes sense to raise up front but I, I just think it's nice to be able to um understand what what the mix is and we've had many guests on the podcast and it's like always interesting to hear from them how they've got funded and we've we've kind of got um you know an even mix we've got a bunch of really great success stories where they went to um you know crowdfunding sites and were able to like fully launch there pay for their whole production run it gave them the capital they needed it they tested out their sale they had proof of concept people loved it and then that was you know that was the first turn of their cash conversion cycle if you want to if you will and then we've got others that went totally friends and family bootstrap next thing you know they're on shark tank raising a bunch of money and turning down the sharks and, and growing that way and then you've got a couple that are going after really big markets and maybe they're doing something that's slightly different than um, a typical uh, D2C brand. Maybe it has, you know, parts that like one or, or two parts that are very reminiscent of a, a D2C brand, but then it has a back end where this business can scale way beyond um, any one one brand. And those are the types that VCs like with, with a little bit bigger market and a little bit different product. So that's a, a quick, nice overview of the different types of funding paths to to get launching with the business. And then let's, let's move on to... Um, to growth capital, right? So let's assume that we've already, we've started our business now, whether through any of the avenues that we talked about. And now we've got a product, we've locked in a cash conversion cycle. Things are starting to work. People like our product. They're coming back. They're purchasing purchasing for us. Um, unit economics on our product look good. So, you know, we can afford to store it. We can afford to ship it. Um, we can afford everything. And the unit economics are really starting to look good. And now we're looking to go into more growth mode, right? We want to build out our team. We want to scale some operations, maybe invest in a bigger warehouse or or something and start to scale things up. What do capital options look at that stage of the business? Well, you are almost all going, always going into institutional capital um, at this point. And so you're looking at um, VCs, you're looking at, you know, kind of growth slash PE, and I'll explain that, what that means. And um, oftentimes people are starting to move towards like family offices and, and, and those. Um, but before we explore those, I just want to go back to like, remember like hands down the best source of cash is the cash you generate yourself. So if you can get to that stage that you're describing and um, there you will be able to have a, a, um, an analysis that says like, well, look, if I grew a little slower but I generated more cash, would that be okay, you know, for my goals? And that, that could be a really good um, avenue because, you know, particularly in, in an environment like this that we're in, right, December of 22, very uncertain economic environment facing us in 23. 
and and hard funding environment like you know hey not growing 100% is is perfectly okay if you can keep if you can make it through 23 and still be growing at all um the other key thing to remember is like uh, what we tell founders is like, you know, in capital, right, the company is paying for the debt, right? If you raise debt capital, the company pays for it. If you raise equity capital, you're paying for it. So that's a really key consideration to keep in mind. Like when you see people going out and raising and they're, and they're like, well, what are you raising for? And they're like, oh, I need more inventory. And you're like, hang on a second. Like that's coming out of your pocket. You don't want to have, you know, build a $100 million a year business and be left with 10% of it. You know, you want to have a really big chunk of that when it's left. And so you'd be really careful around um, taking too much dilution or selling too much of your equity too early. And the simple way to remember it is just like, you're paying for the equity, the company's paying for the debt. So, no, I, I love that. That's that's another really simple way to, to look at things. And I guess the, the question then becomes, right, you, if, if that's the case, then the question becomes, what's the right amount of capital um, that the company can take on based on how much cash you're generating, right? Because if you if you take on too much debt, like you were saying before, that can compound against you. And then the amount that you're paying to service the debt becomes insurmountable based on the cash that you're generating. And if you sell too much equity, then you're selling out all your future potential. So how as a founder do you kind of figure out that balance and understand, um, you know, what the right appropriate pace is for you to grow between those three, call it those let's just focus on those three ways of generating cash of um, equity financing, debt financing, and generating cash yeah. yourself through the products yeah. you're selling. Well, um, the answer to that question is really what your vision for the business is, you know, what your goals are. So, um, you know, there's a lot of founders who have a great brands. So they're building awesome brands and like, look, I want to, this is my life's work. I want to, I want to be doing this when I'm 60 or 70 years old. And that's great. So like, what do you, you know, what really do you care how fast you grow? Like as long as you grow and can, and can stay in control and achieve your vision and provide a nice life for yourself. And that's totally fine. The other thing to remember is like, you look at some of the brands that we idolize, especially in the luxury goods space. I mean, these brands were family businesses that grew over decades. It took a long time. You know, so the idea that you're like, oh, I'm going to stand up a brand and get to a billion dollars in like four years, like, you know, that just doesn't happen. Um, and so, you know, that I think is is one that people often overlook because they they sometimes feel like, oh, I should be growing like, you know, what I see in, you know, TechCrunch or whatever. Um, <clears throat> if you are going the institutional route and you do want an exit, then like you've got to sort of work your way backward from the exit. So you got to think of like, and this is really hard to do because December of 2022, who knows what the IPO market is. But you gotta you gotta have to think like okay realistically what could I exit and when oh maybe it's five years out okay so I'm thinking and what type of business am I well I'm probably gonna exit to a strategic let's say that I'm like a food and beverage brand you know so now I'm working my way back you know to what do I have to do to make myself really attractive to you know a Unilever or a PNG or Church and Dwight or whoever it might be and that's likely to do my exit. The second exit path usually is to a PE. That has a different set of criteria. Um, and then the third exit path would, would be an IPO, right? Which would have a separate set altogether. So working our way through those, like if you're um, thinking like, oh, can my likely exit is to a strategic, then strategics buy you, they, they don't buy unprofitable companies, right? They're buying, they're so big, they don't have time to deal with it. They don't want to fund losses. So what they're doing is they're looking for um, evidence of dominance in a category that they're interested in and evidence that, that it'll work in their distribution network. And then the fact that the thing can make money. So if like, if we use Hero as an example, cause it came, you know, it happened in the past few months, right? Exited out to Church and Dwight for 600 plus million off of a, like a 45% EBITDA margin, I believe. Um, and then a 14 multiple off that. So, you know, what they did, though, the very first step of that was like they had dominance in a new category, uh, right, of like zit stickers or whatever. I don't know, that's not the technical name, but whatever it was. And they proved that they could sell on retail. And they proved they were profitable. So that's like a very attractive target, right? So like a lot of strategics are going to be interested in that. What they're not going to be interested in is like 
hey, I'm the number seven brand. Um, I can't, you know, I have yet to crack, you know, where you guys are. And oh, by the way, I'm losing money. <laughs> like that's not gonna happen. On the PE side, then the exits are gonna come out, pri private equity, that stands for. Um, that's gonna come out, they're, gonna, they're very financially focused. They're often selling, buying you and then selling you to another PE fund, right? So they wanna see the ability that you're profitable and then through their kind of playbook, they can grow you and make you more profitable. So you, you need evidence of those. And then the public markets, like who knows, right? I mean, there's lots of companies that went public recently in our space, the D2C space, who are really struggling. If you look at their stock prices, they were unprofitable, they're still unprofitable. They're rapidly running out of cash, but when they went public a year or 18 months ago, nobody cared, right? So, you know, they were sort of op um, opportunistic about it. So, yeah, the two things I definitely want to cover a little bit um, are, I, th I think you do a great job of summarizing the, the strategics and the angle there and what a brand really needs to show to be able to be a prime target for acquisition, right? It's not just about being a, um, you know, a cool marketing sort of play. You've got to have you've got to be really innovating in a new category, something that they don't have. You got to be profitable, got to have great margins and you have to add something to their existing network. And then they believe that with their added distribution, they're going to be able to continue to scale up whatever you're doing. Um, and then on the PE side, um, I think it's definitely an interesting one to talk about because I know there is typically, there's always been a lot of interest from PE with these sort of D to C brands, and they can all offer something different. They come in with their own different operating things. So what? Why don't let's just go a little bit deeper into what um, selling to PE looks like in terms of like what the requirements are for diligence um, and stuff like that, as well as well as what the outcome looks like. You know, are they owning part of the company, the whole company? What what does that kind of look like? And then when they say they can, you know come in and operate and uh, optimize a couple things to sell it to someone else. Like what are those things that they're actually able to do? What are they bringing to the table during the time that they own the business? Yeah. Well, let's start with the PE business model. So the, the PE bit and this explains why they do what they do, right? So the PE business model is that they raise funds in the form of equity. Then they buy companies and they invest some of the, their equity and they put loans against it for the rest. So let's, Simple example is, you know, they buy a company for $100 million, they might take $20 million from their fund as the equity, and then they're going out and borrowing, you know, the, the remaining $80 million, right? So wh why would you do that? Well, the reason you do that is because if I can, over three or four or five years, take that company from $100 million to $300 million, not only do I get to pay off all that debt, so now I have like $3 million clear, right? Three, 300 million rather clear. So my returns are astronomical, right? I turned 20 million into 300 million. I'm massively simplifying the business model. But this is why PE guys fly around in private chats, right? And so like, that's a really good business when you can do it. Um, so what do you need to, what do they look for? Well, they look for somebody that can handle the debt load, that's generating enough free cash that they can lever it. They can put debt on the company. And then they're looking for the potential for growth. And then they're looking for the potential of even expanding that, that profitable margin. So, um, you know, I can't speak to all these guys, but oftentimes the level of due diligence is really intense. These are some of the smartest people we've run into in terms of their questions and their, and their ability to look at the data and, particularly the finance, like you are absolutely kidding yourself if you go into a PE fund and you do are not really well prepared, you're gonna get blown out of the water or completely taken advantage of. And you, and you won't know until two years go by and you're like, oh, like I, I really sold this thing cheaply. <laughs> so these guys are uh, really smart and they're good at, at looking at numbers and data. So you've gotta be prepared, um, which is something we can help with, right? I'll plug myself for a second. Um, so that, and then they're selling usually to strategics or other PE funds. So, you know, the pitch is like, Hey, I, you know, this thing's growing you know, da, 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 we're ready to exit, you know, and a bigger PE fund comes along. Hey, this looks really interesting. I'll fold it into my other thing. 
you know, that's why you see companies often changing hands like every five years. Once they sell to PE, you know, it becomes like, you know, a round robin of until somebody runs the damn thing into the ground because they lever it at like 99%. And then there's a downturn and the whole thing blows up. Um, no, I, I think that perspective and just, again, simplifying it um, for like early operators and knowing how the PE model works, why it makes sense for them, what they might be looking for. Um, all of that is super important. And then moving on from PE, uh, IPO and public market exits, right? Like what is required? I know that, um, you know, they're typically the ones that I'm sure most people are familiar with are the big IPOs that are like the major brands that people hear of, but like companies can go public too that, um, you know, maybe more quietly as well. So what is, what's required for an IPO? Who's eligible? Um, how long does it take and how do you get there? Well, it used to be, there used to be this sort of like rule of thumb, like, oh, you got to be a hundred million of sales. And then it became, you know, something else. And then I was like, oh, you know, funds won't cover you or buy you until you're like a 3 billion market. It, it, on and on and on. There's always rules of thumbs. But the, the real answer is that um, it completely depends on the market conditions. So if you're in like a, this insane bull market, like we were past, you know, two or three years ago, like, hey, you know, like bankers are running around, like looking for deals and, uh, you know, you look good enough, like, let's, let's go, right? And if it's a, a difficult market, then, you know, there's just, you have to be exceptionally, uh, you'd have to have exceptional finances to, to get public in that market. Um, there's been one exception to, to the sort of general rule of thumb in the past couple of years, which is Laird Superfoods, which went public at a very small revenue base, um, hasn't done very well as a stock, but they got public, uh, they're liquid. So, you know, there's, there's some, you know, kudos to them. Um, but very difficult stock for people to trade because it, it's so thin. The reason that's hard is that um, you, you imagine the size of like a Fidelity, right? Putting, they, they need to be able to put tens of millions, hundreds of millions into a stock. And so they can't buy like ranking stocks and it's too hard, right? Um, well, you'd ask another question. What do you need to, uh, oh, the process takes a long time. It's a really long time. You have to have lo lots of profitability, several, um, quarters of it, you really got to ramp up your your um, management team, your finances, your accounting. Um, so, you know, you're looking at at least a year process, but probably people start thinking about it and then it happens like two years later is what would be my guess. Got it. No, that that's super, super helpful as well. And the next thing I wanted to talk about now that we've kind of talked about the different exit paths and, and what those look like are... Um, you know, there are a couple different ways that you can start to like build, um, you know, leverage and how you're thinking about cash. Like I know, you, you know, venture debt's an option. You can do supplier terms. There's uh, a couple different types of credit that you can get involved in your business. So could you give a quick run through of maybe what some of those other ways of um, sourcing capital are? for your business beyond uh, the capital that you're generating? Well, you mentioned one, which is like often overlooked, but it is hands down the best source of capital and off, almost always the cheapest, which is supplier terms. So, you know, um, some people are great at negotiating these. A lot of pe times people aren't, and there's lots of things that you can do, you know, to, to sort of in your favor. But every day that you can get a, a you know, of credit is really valuable to the company. So that you can get somebody from... 15 to 30 or 30 to 45, it's, they're huge wins. And you can see this when you do the modeling. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't have to end at just like, um, hey, can you give me some more credit? You know, you can do things to, to make yourself more attractive. Maybe you put more, agree to put more business to that supplier, you know, so you increase your minimum order quantities or you put more, you get more of, they get more of your business. Um, or you play off suppliers off of each other, you know, like so that, hey, one thing, you know, instead of negotiating price, you negotiate credit terms because maybe they're pretty well capitalized so they can afford to do it and it's cheap for them. And then the, what you see a lot of um, bigger brands do, like if you looked at like Lululemon's um, financials, for example, you would see that they set up banking relationships over in China. So they're providing letters of credit, which then their suppliers can look to. So their supplier isn't saying like, oh, I, you know, I'm taking Lululemon credit, which is probably a pretty good credit, but it's not as good as like, you know, Citibank credit. And so then, you know, they're like, oh, well, that's pretty good, right? So you can get fancy on, the, on you know, financing this. After that, um, the key is 
is matching. That's the that's the thing that's often overlooked. Everybody wants to jump into like interest rates and the cost of capital, but it, you really want to focus on the matching. So what matching means is like the use of the capital that you're borrowing matches your ability to. Um, I said this wrong. The the term in which you have to repay it matches the uh, your ability to use it. So the way to think about this is like. You know, if you were to go get a bank term loan and it's like a three-year loan, right? Like you close it and then the next day they wire you that million dollars. And guess what? You start paying interest on it and sitting on your balance sheet and you're like, well, I don't need it, right? I don't need it for another eight months or whatever. Or the, the uh, opposite example of that is like merchant cash advances, you know, Wayfire, ClearCo's um, of the world, right? So what they're doing is they're like, you know, giving you money, but then they're asking for you to pay it back before you fully used it. So you're like, okay, well, that doesn't, that kind of hurts, right? Like, um, I kind of need this money, right? I still haven't gotten my paid, sold my inventory. So you really want to try to match as closely as possible your um, to your cash conversion cycle. Yeah, and I think I think that's really, really important because when you're, when you're matching the amount that you're, because I think, for different operators or when you're financing your business, when you're taking capital that's not your own, you're always paying for it. So the longer you're holding that capital without putting it to use, it's just costing you whatever percentage rate that they're charging for you to be borrowing it, right? So it can literally just burn a hole in your pocket just by sitting on it. So by matching, you want to, if you're borrowing capital, you want to get as close to using the exact amount of capital that you need and holding it for the shortest amount of time possible. And that's what generally matching is, right? That's exactly right. And the, the, the best tool for that is called a revolver. Um, the, what, the way that um, we're all familiar with revolvers, we all have them in our wallet. They're, we call them credit cards. But the revolvers are, you know, you get credit, you use it, and then you pay it back, right? And a revolver from a bank, they, you know, ours in our wallet have 30 day terms on them, but like a, a revolver from a bank typically, you know, allows you to pay it back over a year or whatever period you want to pay it back. Banks typically hate revolvers though, so they're very difficult to get. Um, so it takes a little negotiation. You have to be profitable and prove to be a strong credit and all those things to, to get them, but they're fantastic tools. Um, <clears throat> After matching, the, the next biggest thing is like the is focusing on the dollar amounts, and so you want to focus on getting enough money to achieve what you want to achieve, right? So there's no point in getting, um, you know, people are like, oh, I got a six percent bank loan. And it's like, well, you needed three million, but you only got five hundred thousand. So now what? Now what are we going to do for the rest of the two point five, right? So, like we argue to to cut, you know, our client, our customers, like, hey. You would be better off, you know, instead of focusing on 6% money, you'd be better off trying to get the full 3 million that you need, even if it costs you 15%, you know, get, assuming you can support, your business can support that. Because now you actually have the money that you need to, to grow and achieve your goals. Um, and then the, the very last, the third consideration is the, is the cost of capital. And that is, um, you know, with a good model, um, you, you can figure out the cost of capital, even on these very complex uh, products that like the alternative lenders come up with, which they you know, often make purposely complex and, and hard to follow. Um, and you know, there what you're trying to do is, is understand your company's ability to support those debt payments. And what you're really trying to focus on is like, does taking that money um, increase or decrease over time my ability to generate free cash. And in the way, um, let, to give you an example, is like if you were to take like a, a merchant cash advance and let's say that the repayment on it was like, I don't know, 16% or 20%. I mean, some of them you do the math on it. It's like, you know, outrageous. Right? Um, <clears throat> then you, you know, but let's say it's, it's 15%. And let's say you had a 10% EBITDA margin. I'm just totally making up numbers. They're taking their 15% off the top. So you know, you've reduced your sales by, by 15%. You, you no longer have a 10% EBITDA margin, right? Well, yeah, your margin structure stayed the same, but you, you're not able to generate free cash. 
And so now you have this problem of like, well, geez, you know, okay, it got me through this period, but I, I'm no longer generating my own cash. Now what do I do? And, and hopefully, um, you know, you, you're okay, but you need to be really careful about it because it's the implications of your future cash generation that, that make those products dangerous and get people trapped. So, so you're basically saying if you take on too much debt um, for, for yourself and where your business is at, all the cash you're generating is basically going towards repaying the debt on that cash. And then you're just kind of stuck tre- treading water and you can't actually grow now because all your money is just going to service your debt. Well, yeah. And, and going back to the, that's exactly right. And going back to the cash conversion cycle, like let's say your, ca- your cash conversion cycle is 180 days and you know, you're, you take this MCA and you're like paying it down, you know, you're, you might be done at 120, 90, you know, so you're paying, you're borrowing and paying back faster than your cash conversion cycle. And like, and this is a really, so it's not just that, that you're reducing the sales, but you're also giving the money back so much quicker. It's, it's a really hard concept for people to put in their heads. That's why like a really good model helps because you can just sit there and play with it. And you're like, oh, I see the relationship now. But you you effectively have, you know, these two big flywheels working um, and how they interplay is, can get confusing really quickly and get people in trouble if they don't can't conceptualize it or model it. No, absolutely. And I think the last one, um, are, are there any other sort of like alternative types of financing that are emerging in the e-com space? I know there might be, you know, things like, um, like, uh, like not just revenue-based financing, but also like where you're lending against your inventory or different solutions like that for financing. Like what, what else exists in this? What are some of the other tools that maybe aren't, um, are either emerging or new ideas or, um, you know, a little bit different. Yeah, well, the good news is there's fantastic product. There's a lot of innovation in the space and there's a lot of things to explore. So you mentioned a couple uh, right there. So one is um, what's called asset-based lending, ABLs. Uh, this is grew up out of the retail space. The idea there was that the bank would come in and say, you know, I'll look at your inventory and I'll basically put a, a, a dollar amount on how much I could liquidate it for. And then I'm going to loan you some amount of money less than that, right? So what they might, you know, a simple example is they might come in and say like, I, it looks like you have a million dollars of inventory. You know, my, I think I could liquidate this at 50 cents on the dollar, therefore $500,000. And my advance on that will be whatever. So I'll give you 400000 So ABLs can be really good for, um, and, and the rates tend to be very strong because the bank is secured against the inventory. So nice low cost of capital, you know, you get sort of moves up and down with your either thing. The, the issues with ABLs is that they typically don't fund uh, your POs. You know, they only fund what's sitting in the warehouse. So the payments that you're making to your suppliers or inventory that's on the water typically aren't funded through those. Some, some will get fancy and do it. Um, the other issues with those is like, uh, you know, it, it's highly reliant on like name brand inventory. So like if you, you know, are a retailer and you had a ton of Patagonian stock, well, it's like, well, geez, I could sell Patagonia for 90 cents on the dollar. But if you have, you know, you're retailing, you have like a bunch of like Ben's sweaters on the, you know, and people are like, I've never heard of Ben's sweaters. Like, then it's hard to get ABLs against that. Um, there's some interesting things around like, uh, one, another one to mention is like venture debt. Venture debt though is really only available once you've taken venture capital. So don't waste your time on it if you haven't taken a VC round recently, um, because what they're doing is they're underwriting the sponsor. So they're saying like, oh, you just got money from Sequoia? Like, I'm in. <laughs> like, I'll loan you money. And if you're like, oh, you just got money from like some fourth rate VC that I've never heard of? Like, eh, maybe, I'll, maybe I will, maybe I won't. You know, and if, oh, you haven't taken any VC money, then like, forget it. They don't want to, they don't want to talk to you. Because they're really underwriting the sponsor, the, the VC's ability to keep funding you. Um, and then what else, uh, oh, revenue-based, that's popular in the SaaS space and it's starting to come into the e-com space because of the rise of subscription models, right? So there's a, um, a group called Pipe that does some of this, you know, where they're basically trying to look at your, the quality of your subscription business. And then, you know, they're saying, oh, that's a, a set of cash flows that I can model and that I can predict. So I'll lend against that. 
Um, and then what else? Um, we talked about revolvers. We talked about ABLs. Uh, oh, factoring. That's a huge one. So this is like D to C folks often don't understand factoring. And as you know, as we're all getting into like Walmart and Target, right? Your financing options now have changed. So the idea behind factoring is like, um, it's it's a simple idea, right? So you get an order from Walmart or Target, and um, I can't remember the technical term now. It's not the PO, but it's the it's the the commitment to pay, right? Um, and what the factorer will do, the financing group will do, is they'll say, "Oh, I'm now taking Walmart credit because this is a." obligation by Walmart to give you, you know, a million dollars or whatever for that inventory. And so you can go sell that effectively or get a loan against it. It, you know, gets fancy, but that's effectively what you're doing. And because it's Walmart credit, you know, they're like, oh, well, we'll give you like 95 cents on the dollar, or, you know, some really high rate on it because, you know, they're basically just taking Walmart credit risk at that point. So factoring can be a terrific way as you build your um, omni-channel business, you know, to find that growth because we all, everybody faces that problem, right? Like I got an order from Target, like we're going to kill it. And it's like, holy shit, I got to come up with like $2 million of inventory. (laughs) Now what do I do? Right. So fact. Yeah. I think that one is really great because a lot of these brands, they're starting online and then they're growing and they're, they're going. And actually from everyone we've been talking to, it seems like brands are going multi-channel even sooner, um, than before. Right. So if you can, uh, and a lot of the brands that we've had on, it's great to follow their success and see as they get placed into Whole Foods, get placed into Walmart, get placed into all these major retailers. Um, so, you know, for for them, and as you're thinking about building your business and your strategy, just knowing that maybe when you're when you're thinking about retail, knowing that that opens up, um, you know, maybe a more cost effective version of uh, generating a little cash to continue to grow your business versus maybe some of the other more costly debt avenues. Um, it's just a good good tool for, for founders to, to have in their pocket. Um, so that was awesome. That was a great crash course in everything that a founder needs to know. Um, and I guess the last question about like, I know we've been talking about cost of capital, the relationship between interest rates, markets, how they're pricing these companies, and actually the cost of capital itself. So could you talk a little bit about um, just that linkage between interest rates, company valuations, and the cost of capital and how it actually affects businesses in in real terms? Yep. And and before I do that, Blaine, I just want to uh, mention that um, all that stuff and more that I've talked about is all up at BainbridgeGrowth.com. You can find it. You can go in way more detail. And we have interviews with like chief credit officers. So you, like, you can really see the behind the scenes of how they think about it. Um, okay, so interest rates and um, how that impacts businesses. So, um, so again, like, you know, the way to think about capital, like we said, it's a tool, but it's also like, you know, something that people buy and sell, right? So if I'm a lender... I have to think about like, what's my source of capital because I'm marking it up, you know, just like you are like as a, you know, D to C brand, I'm buying capital, I'm marking it up and then I'm selling it to somebody else. And um, if you're a bank, your source of funds is fantastic. You know, it's, it's all of us putting money in our checking accounts for which they give us zero in, you know, for interest rates on, <laughs> like, how's that happen? <laughs> and, um, you know, and they're borrowing from the Fed. So they have like fantastically low interest rates. That's why they can go out and make loans at like five, six, seven percent. You know, the flip side of that is that they're like, they're like, we are never going to lose money on a loan. Of course, banks do, but they're terrified of losing money on a loan. So they're going to be incredibly conservative in their underwriting, right? Um, if you're like an alternative lender, like a Wayfire or a Clearco or somebody like that, you're, t- you're, you're, Oftentimes you're borrowing money or getting money from credit funds. So these are big uh, groups like, you know, typically New York or, you know, whatever, London, um, billions and billions of dollars that they've gone and they've gone and raised money from like pension funds. Right. Um, and they've said, hey, I'll give you a 10 percent return or something on this money. And then pension funds are like, that's fantastic. 
So now the, these credit funds are coming out and saying like, well, I got to loan this money out and make more than 10%. I got to cover my costs and I want to fly in a private jet too. So I got to loan this thing like out of like 15 or something. So then they're like loaning it at 15, right? To the alternative lenders. And then the alternative lenders are turning around. They're like, well, I just borrowed money at 15%. I can't get it. You know, 16 is not going to do it for me. So I needed to get put it out at like 20, right? Or some markup. So, you, you know, just like you see it in retail, you know, capital gets marked up. And so, you know, that is why the rates tend to be so high as you go, um, you know, through these alternative lenders. It also, you know, explains why, like, you know, you as the small business, like I'm losing money, you know, like the only people coming calling are like Shopify Capital and ClearCo. And, you know, Bank of America is like, like, I'm happy to run your checking account for you, but like, that's it, <laughs> you know, um, you know, because of the risk, the risk profile of the business. That was probably a, that was a really sloppy explanation, but <laughs> no, but I, I, I think what, what really stands out about that is just the fact that as you niche down and as you become more specific, like as your operations become more and more specific, the cost of capital gets marked up. So in an environment where interest rates are higher then that cost gets passed along to you. So now before when you would be paying 10% to, um, on your, your, your loans, now, you know, well, if interest rates go all the way up to seven, eight, nine, 10%, whatever it is, that your loan that you're looking at now, that's getting bumped up and that cost is getting passed along to you. So the cost of everything gets more expensive, the cost of growth and everything. And now you, you and that goes back to our conversation before when we we're talking about, in this environment, do you grow versus just generate cash? It becomes very expensive and almost prohibitive in a lot of times to grow. Whereas if capital is costs you two percent, then you know you should be trying to grow at all costs because it's basically free at that point. So that's kind of um, you know how sm small businesses can think about uh, you know the the relationship between interest rates. Um, and, and the cost of capital. And then as well, and the way you see that in, in the markets when, when and, and we've seen it, right? Like as soon as the Fed said they were gonna start hiking rates up, the first thing that happened was tech stocks started to plunge, right? And because people aren't there chasing yield and return anymore. Um, so so yeah, it's just, a, it's just really important, I think as a, a, someone who's like founding a business, maybe for the first time, maybe they're in it, just to understand how these like different macroeconomic indicators affect the actual day-to-day -day of what, what you're, you're focused on building. Well, Blaine, that was very well said and much better than, than how I said it. Um, and I think what, what you were making me think when uh, you were saying that is like, it's, it's, it goes back to the importance of like controlling your destiny too. You know, so like if you're going to build a business that's going to be highly reliant on outside capital, then you have to be thinking through these things all the time and be getting it right a lot. Whereas if you are saying like, hey, I, I kind of want to control my destiny, then you should focus on generating your own cash. I can survive through any type of economic environment. I'm never going to have to do something I don't want to do. Um, and I, you know, I think that's a, a great plan. You know, I think it goes also back to brands you know i mean i just it's so hard to build these brands and so you know let's we don't need to be in a rush right like you know they take a little time and, and giving yourself that the ability to get there through your own cash i think is really well worth it you have a better exit so ben now that you've given us like the entire like i i feel like we just went through mba and in, in in crash course in finance and i love it um so now that we've done that why don't you tell us a little bit more about Bainbridge, the company that you're actually building to serve all these different needs and help founders like through all this sort of stuff. So like, what is it that you're building? What are the tools that you're giving them? And how do you help them navigate all these different things that we just talked about as they all come together and interact with one another? Uh, thanks, Blaine. Yeah. So it's, it's BainbridgeGrowth.com and we're combining data and finance to help founders maximize their outcomes. And the reason that that's so hard is that, um, as we were talking about, you're, you have to master a lot of different flywheels, right? So there's the flywheel of your cash conversion cycle. There's the flywheel of your unit economics, like how, you know, how much am I, what are my prices and how much do I make? And then there's the, the third flywheel, which for most, you know, a lot of businesses is, is the repeat business. 
from when I acquire a customer, how quickly do I get paid back and how much do those customers generate for me in the future? Add in the complexity of omni-channel, right? right so now I'm, I'm, I've got a model, a repeat business, a customer acquisition business, there's my D2C. I've got a model, Amazon, ad spend, buying the buy box, inventory to, you know, to Amazon. That's another type of model. And then I've got a model like, oh, selling to Target and doors and uh, accounts, doors, you know, sell put. It gets complicated really quickly. And because the nature of this business is like, because cash is so tight and margins are hard, you can, you're up on the high wire, right? And it can, um, you know, and I think that's where we really can be helpful, where founders are like, I have a decent sense of this and I have models and I have this stuff, but I don't really know what to do next. I don't know what levers are the most important. I don't know how do I generate more of my cash. I don't know, you know, what are the impacts? Like, should I be focused on first purchase AOV or repeat purchases? And like, you know, to put a, a fine point on that, we had a, uh, one of our customers, very f- subscription business, great business, very focused on 12-month uh, retention rate of his subscription business. But he also wants to get to profitability. So we ran all these analyses and we're like, hey, the number one thing you could do right now is increase your first purchase AOV by seven bucks. And you'll have a a 12% EBIT margin next year. And he was like, oh my God, yes, let's do that. We can do that. And he got so excited. You know, he's like, we're going to increase our product mix. We're going to do these things. And like, you know, he's like, I now can go get that that growth round. I can take some secondary, meaning I put a little bit of money in my pocket. So that's like really exciting, you know, because otherwise they're just sitting there spinning their wheels like, oh, what do we do? I guess we've just, you know, tried to do it all, you know, and it's the the truth is these levers have different weights, different impacts. So you really want to understand how to push them and and get there faster and and without getting, you know, selling a lot of your equity to do it. (laughs) And Ben, I think that's such a, such an important point because, um, you know, all these different businesses, sometimes the hardest thing is knowing exactly where you should be focusing on, right? There's, and and you hear so many times, oh, you know, CAC to LTV, or we need to get our ROAS down, or we need to do this, or we need to do that. But like, ultimately, every business is a little bit different. They have different inputs. And like you said, they have different flywheels. So, you know, maybe for the one brand that you were working with, it made all the sense in the world. You're like, okay, you need to get your first purchase AOV up by $7. And that's the clearly the the outcome for you. But there may be another subscription business that has like great, totally different unit economics and like amazing subscription numbers. And you're like, let's just sell more free trials of that first month of product because we know we're going to make it up on the back end. So the most meaningful thing you can do is just drive first orders for free. Like you don't know what it is until you're actually able to plug your entire business into these sort of models and understand how all those different levers interact. And then you're able to understand which is the right lever to pull for your business, which I think is really important about what you guys are working on and what you guys do in the the service that you're providing to brands is providing that clarity of like, okay, what is it that I should be focusing on? Not like what are the industry best practices for generic D to C brand, but what is it for my brand given my mix, how much, what my unit economics are, what channels I'm selling on, what my product is, how much it costs to ship, all these different inputs that need to work together as opposed to just like, oh, let's focus on ROAS today, right? Right. That's right. You're absolutely right. We have, we have limited time, you know, money and effort from our teams. And so if you waste it on the, the seventh, ninth and 15th most important levers, you, you don't get it back. Right. So you want to focus it on one, two and three. And that's how these you, it's no mystery. Like you see the companies that do well and they explode. They all figured out their levers and they focus relentlessly on those. Um. Great. So as we kind of wrap up here, um, you know, what is like an engagement working with you guys look like uh, from a DDC brands perspective? Um, and, you know, where, where can they get in touch with you? Like where, where are you guys on social? Are you on LinkedIn? Where, where can brands connect with you guys as well? Yep, absolutely. So we're on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, BainbridgeGrowth.com or Ben at BainbridgeGrowth.com. Um, reach out directly. Uh, we have, I think, a really cool engagement model, um, which is, you know, this stuff is hard and it's complex. So a lot of times people are like, ah, you know, I don't know. So we start in our phase one, um, 
we just say, look, it's 5,000 bucks. And in three weeks, we're gonna, we're gonna take your data and we're gonna take your finances and we're gonna come back and teach you a lot about your business, right? And we're confident, we're so confident that we're gonna teach you something about your business that's gonna make a difference and help you prioritize that if we don't, we'll just give you the 5,000 back. And if you wanna keep working with us, you can put it as a deposit towards your annual subscription. So it's, it's you know, virtually no risk. Um, and at the end of it, they get this like 90 minute session, you know, to like, and uh, it really just goes through the basics, you know, which a lot of times people have kind of forgotten, you know, the first principles. Like, are you generating cash or are you, are you, you know, using it? Okay, how much do you have left? <laughs> Let's figure that one out right now, you know? Um, and then we're, you know, just, it, it's really fun. That's, those are some of the funnest sessions because you, see people's eyes light up and like, oh, I had no idea, you know? We thought it was something else. I had no idea that this was going on. And it's like, I, you know, it's, and then it's sort of like, that's what makes our jobs fun because we really feel like we're making a big impact. Yeah, and, and I think it's so interesting too because like there's so many tools involved in like the D2C stack and maybe you're looking at your Shopify dashboard, but that's not really giving you the insights that you need to actually run the business, right? So uh, what you guys are able to do is like really help tell that story about what's actually happening at a business level and not just like a orders level, product level, the stuff that is e really easy to get drawn into and focus on, but really being able to bring that other side to it. So anyway, Ben, wanted to thank you for coming on the pod today, um, teaching myself and our audience and everyone a little bit more about what they really need to know about financing, especially in this sort of space. And I uh, can't wait to hear about more of the, the brands that you guys really helped grow and help them pull all the right levers. Thanks, Blaine. I had a blast. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.